You are listening to audio from the church at Junius Heights. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website, thechurchatjuniusheights.org. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you don't want to be seated, you can keep standing, but I guess that's, I guess that's up to you. A, uh, we're in the book of Acts, and if you're catching up or it's your second time, we may be in Acts for a long time. Today, we're in Acts chapter six, and if you missed last week, Pastor Sam brought a message about Ananias and Sapphira, and if, if you missed it, it was this it was contrast of what true community is, that the followers of the way can't be faked. If you're in Christ Jesus and you're part of the body, you can't pretend like you are by giving a bunch of money. And so the contrast of faking it in the, in the body of Christ and then being honest to God Almighty, the Holy Spirit, you can't lie. And so Sam, I listened to it on Thursday and I thought I, he did a great job of a really, really hard passage. And this week, we're in chapter six. And chapter six is sort of a unique chapter in Acts. It's the shortest of all of Acts chapters. It's the shortest of the 28 different chapters in Acts. And it's, it's kind of really a setup for the character of Stephen that we'll see next week. But this first section, verse one through seven, is at the first look, one of those passages that I bet people skip over because it just seems like a technical detail to the early church. But the further I got into it, the word of God it proved to be all, always profitable for teaching, always profitable for correction and rebuke and admonishment. It was it's God breathed. In this little space, there's a lot in there for us as the church to see what the church is like and what leadership in the church is like and why that matters for the church then, why it mattered for the church then, why it really matters today. And so turn in your Bibles to Acts Chapter six, if you don't have a Bible, again, take one from us. We'll keep putting them here. This is the ever-replenishing Bible supply. If you need one, we'll have one for you, okay? Turn to Acts chapter six and look at verses one through seven with me. And I'm probably gonna fumble some of the, 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 the deacon's names that come through, so just get ready for that. Here we go. Chapter six, verse one. I'm sorry, please stand one more time because this is God's word. Please stand one more time for the reading of God's word. And I'm just gonna read it, follow along with me so we don't have to fumble through those names together. <laughs> now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, and the pros who was a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
Verse six, verse one of chapter six, when the disciples were increasing in number. When the what was decreasing in number? Disciples, let's try it again. When the disciples were increasing in number. This verse alone is enough for us to anchor to for the rest of the 28 minutes. Not when the church membership was growing. Not when more people were switching to find the place that they liked better and they joined. Not whenever we had a great and thriving kids ministry. When the number of disciples were increasing in number. The first thing we see in the passage that made the church the church was discipleship kept happening. And you're gonna hear us say it all the time. It's in our mission statement. We're gonna keep talking about it. Making disciples is what the church does. And we can read in the book here and see the first verse. This is what they do, they make disciples. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna constantly say, if you've never been discipled, let us know so we can try to help figure that out. If you've been discipled, then it's time for you to be making disciples. And there are lots of ways to do that and some very clear pieces that are essential for that. It happens in parenting, it happens in friendship, it happens in the church, it happens with lost people. But write that down. Discipleship is, the, is the, a definitive characteristic of the church. And if you're not making disciples or you're not have ever been discipled, let's get on the same page to get us there so that we can continue to be the church. The word disciple means to be a learner that the church is constantly making people who learn how to follow Christ. This is what the church does. It proclaims the gospel, like Ed said about tithing. We talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came, he sinlessly executed humanity, he died on the cross for our sins as the substitute for all mankind, and he rose from the dead. And because all of that really happened, we have hope that can be unshakable. This is the gospel. Well, we teach people what that means and then how to follow Jesus from this day forward until the sky rips open. That's what discipling is, training and teaching people how to follow Christ. Well, the Hellenists in verse one, a complaint against the Hellenist widows and the Hebrew widows pop up. Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. There was sort of a cultural infusion happening where you had Hebrews that spoke Hebrew and they had the original church traditions and kind of the, the anchorage to Father Abraham and all of the traditions. Well, there arose some people in this time, people who spoke Greek who were also Jews. And so you had this collision of languages and cultures with the same roadmap of the Old Testament that they were following. So imagine these Hellenists were a different culture, like Jews and Gentiles. They had a Gentile influence in their culture. And so language and worldview and traditions, philosophy, style of worship was just different. Like hymns versus cool, hip Christian music. There was something happening different that caused a collision, different languages. Note, this is two groups of people, subsects of people, and followers of Christ have made disciples across cultures since the very beginning. Followers of Christ have made disciples across cultural barriers since the beginning. God has placed us at a crossroads of cultural barriers where the cultures represented in styles of worship and languages and skin tones should be reflected in the ministry that plays out in this church. This has been definitively how the church operated. The Hellenists were getting saved and becoming priests well, not ironically, Hellenists spoke Greek. All the Bibles you're holding, the New Testament is translated in Greek. Not ironically, 
the center of the world in Rome spoke Greek. And the converts who were Hellenists, who were a different culture and difficult, had difficult widows to deal with, they had the language that got the gospel to us. They got the gospel to the whole world. Greek was the language. And so this is essential that we catch how important it is to take the gospel across cultures and make disciples. The word of God, verse seven, continued to increase in number and the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many number of priests became obedient to the faith. Those priests became obedient to the faith, became leaders in the Gentile church and the, the language that they spoke rolled all the way down to Junius Heights 2000 something years later. This is a big moment. And their motivation to make disciples is the same as ours. It's the gospel. We connect to the early church because it's exactly the same. We know what Jesus came and did and accomplished. And so we take that message to whoever God puts in front of us. Another thing, another attribute of the church that was really definitive here in this one verse was they served the, church, they served the needy. They served the poor. That's what the church did. Daily distribution in verse one at the end of it. Daily the church had a job that they took care of widows. So imagine if you go back a few pages, the church is growing like crazy. 3,000 whenever the first Peter's preaching at, at, at Pentecost happens, 3,000 come to, to Christ, and then another 5,000 a little bit later. So you're talking like 15,000 people in a city needing to be cared for. We have widows and brokenness and poverty situations and needs, whatever those are, by the 10,000s. And so they're trying to figure this thing out. And they had daily a system of something where at least two groups of widows showed up and the church served. B.H. Carroll is a, an old Baptist theologian. It was a seminary president here in Texas, I think. And his commentary's up in my office. He said that a burst of philanthropy that, never, that has never been surpassed in the world history, a burst of philanthropy never surpassed in the world's history happened after Pentecost. Then when the believers were full of the spirit, all of a sudden everything became a way to serve those in need. It exploded, it lit up the whole map of service to the poor started in this moment. And the church looked around and remembered that Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark. Uh, 1045, when we are in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ, if, if we've been saved, if we've confessed and believed, if we've heard this gospel message and gone, yep, I need salvation for my sin and Christ has entered in, then everything we have is now up for grabs. Everything that we have is now a resource for allocating for the kingdom everything. None of it belongs to us anymore and none of it should even try to be kept because if we have something that might get somebody a little closer to believing and understanding the truth of the gospel, then why don't we give it to them? Whatever it is, our time, our money, our skill set, this is now, our whole life shifts to resource allocation and conflict resolution. We're trying to figure out how do we take what we have and make a way, whatever that is, to invite people into the kingdom because they're, they're gonna find true treasure. They're gonna find absolute riches. They're gonna have hope in the midst of despair, which is worth more than a billion dollars when you have hope. We are now leveraged life assets so somebody can know Christ. 
I don't know if you guys, you probably don't know this, so we haven't been talking a lot, and we're still putting some of this leadership organization polity stuff together in our church, but we have now a budget that we're filling in and making the details of really clear so that we can best allocate our resources and we can know where all the money goes and know where it shouldn't go and make sure that it's super, super, super organized. But there's a line item in there called benevolence. And benevolence is going to have an allocation from the monthly giving every month. It's just gonna sort of fill in that bucket so we can give to those in need so that you can give to those in need. If your bank account is low and somebody you run into needs something, you can call us and say, hey, can we tap into the benevolence? I'm talking with this neighbor and this happened, their car, this and that, they need $400. We have an account to set you free to do what the church did. At Christmas, I got a phone call from a friend of mine and an old friend from growing up, his parents grew up kind of over in this area. And I, I said, hey, how's it going? Good to hear from you. And they said, hey, do you know any, anybody who needs anything in your church this year? Is there anybody around Christmas that could use uh, some Christmas uh, help or love? And I was like, well, let me get back to you. I think so. Well, Thursday nights, if you didn't know this, now you know, and on Wednesdays, there is a dinner that happens for mostly single moms from the neighborhood. With a, with a bunch of kids, usually about 20 or 25 kids. And there, there were about 12 of them at the time, these wonderful, godly women who are growing and being discipled on how to follow Jesus. They show up on Thursdays and we have folks that serve and bring food. And I call my friend back and I said, hey, yes, we've got 12 moms that are mostly single moms. Some of the dads are in the picture. They're just like kind of in a rougher spot. You know, can we can, these are the people we would probably wanna help first. And so I was thinking maybe, I don't know, like something Christmas blessing, a few presents for the kids. He goes, okay, let me think about it, I'll call you back. A week and a half later, he and his, and his kids who are my age, his kids are in their late 30s, early 40s, they'd all gotten together and talked. And he called me back and he said, hey, um, my, my dad wants to be a part of this and he wants to, he wants, we, we think we need to give $50,000 to help with those families. I said, excuse me? Uh, do you say, what? $50,000 to help. But he said, man, if you just broke it out, you know, that's not that much, but maybe you can do something. And, and what it did was it started our benevolence fund. And on top of that, we got to bless the socks off of these families this Christmas, where I could say yes to any idea our team had. Yep, let's do it. That sounds great, a crock pot full of Christmas dinner and then a whole bag of blessing for the mom and then a gift card to Target for $1,000. Yep, we can do it. And we delivered those presents over Christmas and, and the team organized in an amazing fashion and every mom to the number weeped. They couldn't believe it, they were overwhelmed. And, and an inch or a mile further in their heart, the gospel moved. And when we leverage our resources to serve like that, these are the kind of things that happen. It doesn't have to be 50 grand. It can be 50 minutes, but it, is, but it can happen. And it's happening in our church. And so no excuses. If you're hanging out with people and they have a need, our church is gonna meet it. And right now we've got some money that we're gonna set up to be that for whatever we need. We got some ideas for getting GED. Some of these folks need to finish high school and they don't have childcare. So now we have a budget to help pay for childcare so they can come and study there's a, there's a million unthought of ideas. And the hope is that, that that benevolence bucket stays full 
and we stay moving that direction with whatever God puts on our plate to go do. So a few questions to ask in, in light of this, a few questions to ask. Is there space in your budget, and is there space in our budget for those in need around us that the church could care for? Is there space in our budget? And where our resources are, our heart will be, you can write this down, we're not gonna go there. Matthew chapter six, verses 19 to 21, for where your treasure is, your heart is also. Don't store up for yourselves storehouses where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot break in and steal, well, cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Is there space? And, and just, just so you look around, there's you know, maybe 60 people here right now, 70 people. A church like this doesn't happen without people who already have space in their budget like that. The, the amount of effort it's taking to get this thing off the ground, but do you, do we have space in there? And then the next question I have is, is there space? And this is a harder question, quite honestly. Is there space and how much space in our time, in our schedule, in our margin for those in need around us? You can just write those down and see what God does with that. The next thing I found in these quick verses, really just in the first verse, is that in the church, the church of God, there is conflict. <laughs> Crickets after that one, huh? In the church, there is conflict. There's a debate that rose up between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. There was a, a, a conflict. There was a concern. There was feedback that was critical that this is, this is not fair. There was something that tense and uncomfortable rose up. And, and we want to think that church is just always happy-go-lucky and I'm blessed, brother. How you doing? I'm blessed today. Are you really? Oh, yes. So blessed. And that might be true, but there's a, there's a truer layer that sometimes if there's a room full of people who have sin in their life, that have a capacity to sin, well, we're gonna sin against each other. In the church, there's gonna be conflict and disagreement. In the church, there's going to be, I don't think that that's right how you're doing it. In the church, there'll be mistakes. In my leadership, there'll be mistakes. But the church becomes a wonder to the watching world when forgiveness and reconciliation are a theme. The church becomes a wonder and a signpost home whenever people can live and be imperfect and bring in our dysfunction in different levels and it can rub all over and mess up each other's days sometimes and we can figure it out. There's conflict in the church and there's a slide that has all these different scriptures if you wanna go and look at those and write those down. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another and forgive one another. There's two parts of that verse. Bear with one another means to figure out and to reconcile and to process and to disagree and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgave, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And if we'll hold that little part in the midst of the disagreements that happen in the church, we'll be okay. Right now you're so frustrated because you made this choice and this is how you wanna do it. And I think you maybe even sinned against me but God forgave me much, and so if I've been forgiven much, I can forgive others. This is the church. Sometimes this is the hardest thing to do in the church, and this is probably like a whole sermon series we'll get to someday on forgiveness and conflict resolution, but in our mission statement, and that's gonna be up on the screen here next, our mission statement is to love God and love our neighbors. Well, we cannot love our neighbors when we stay frustrated and don't have conflict conversations. We can't love our neighbors whenever we don't give them feedback that may be critical 
that we keep it in. And, and I've historically been pretty bad at this, where I've just sort of tried to keep the peace and not say things that needed to be said. And the Lord is shifting that in me because I see how important it is in the church now, and I want our church to be a church that has healthy, hard conversations, that there can be complaints arising amongst us and we can talk about it and figure it out because there's enough grace in our midst that there's room for that stuff. We're ministers of reconciliation. So it says in 2 Corinthians, that will be a theme in our church. There'll, there'll be complaints and conflicts and they'll rise up. The first complaint, by the way, this one, the first complaint that rose, the first conflict that this is not fair, that arose, created the first set of deacons and the first strategic ministry to the poor operation ever. When somebody said, this doesn't seem right, and there was a solution, you have thank you, you know, Red Cross should say thank you. The Goodwill should say thank you to this passage. Any benevolence organization ever, this is where it began. Well, the, the main, one of the main ways that the solution came was through church leadership that the apostles were approached and they had the wisdom and discernment that led the church to figure out a solution. This is the second time we see organized church leadership in the scriptures right here. In the New Testament church, this is the second time. First time when they replaced Judas, second time, verse three, look at verse three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The apostles told the disciples, ask among yourselves, who are these high quality character people? And then we'll appoint them and set up a way so that we can take care of all these needs that are rising up. We'll, we'll set it up. And this is a, a really important topic that some people think is important, some people think is ancillary. This is a really important topic, and it's kind of a hot topic today, how our church structure is supposed to be set up in leadership. And there are a few key passages that different denominations interpret differently to produce how they operate on Sunday. This is how we get denominations, this is how we get Lutheran, and we get Presbyterian, and we get Baptist, and we get non-denominational, and Bible church, we look at this and see how does the church set up in the, in the scriptures, and then how is it set up for us? And there are a lot, of, a lot of good ways to do this, by the way. There are a lot of churches, godly churches, that have pope and archbishop, and they look at that and say, that's part of the line of our leadership. They have deacons, and they have priests and they have, and they have local bishops. There's, there's good churches, godly churches that have elder boards and they make a vote in the whole church for the congregation on everything. There are different ways this plays out, but the goal, and I'm stealing this from a friend of mine named Matt Kessler, who's a pastor and a bishop. He says, the goal is to be a church that is a good boat to fish from. If we're gonna be fishers of men, then we would be a good place for folks to jump in and then go out to seek and save the lost. To be a good boat to fish from, that is the goal. And, and then the leaders of the church kind of look at how they understand based on their understanding of the scriptures and the translation of the language and come up with a way to set up a church leadership. But before we even get into that, authority is good. Having a leadership structure with authority is good, and Jesus modeled that for us. If we look at just his relationship with his mom in John chapter two, he honored authority. But more technically, we look at the way that Jesus honored the authority of the trial that he allowed himself to go through. 
Jesus looks at authority and thinks it's important. And we see him honor his father as the authority, the head. He says, you know what? Whatever my father says, I do. Jesus modeled for us a structure of this and he honored authority. And we'll have a church structure from the scriptures. And, and when I read this, by the way, when Sam reads this, we, we don't see in the scriptures an argument for a pope and an archbishop and a bishop and a priest. Some people do. And we don't see where there's one person in charge of everything all the time. We don't see that either. What we see is somebody, we see a, a lead role play out in the context of accountable, entrusted plurality of leadership where there's elders and deacons that are the most clear in the text and elders have a certain responsibility and deacons have a certain responsibility and they, they're anchored together inside the body of Christ where there's accountability for leadership that is critical and essential. And one of the sweet things about being here with Sam is that you, you have a senior tenured pastor who's been through the ringer and doesn't let me slip. And eventually we'll have elders. And right now there are people who are not named elders but are in my life that will, will when I slip, will pull me out. They'll say, no, no, no more. And if I'm way off the grid, they'll make sure that everybody needs to know that I'm no longer qualified to do this job. There are people that are sitting in this room right now that will do that. But for leadership to be anchored in the church and be accountable is so critical. And that I see in the scriptures, servant leaders holding positions for seasons that create order in the church, that create structure and empower people to do what they're called to do, what their gifts are. And so you can go to 1 Timothy 3 to get a jump start on this. You can go to Titus chapter one to get a jump start on this, but they're described, prescribed qualifications for what an, a deacon is, an elder is. And there are debates on whether or not you can be a male or female deacon, a male or female elder. And some of that is very recent. Some of that is as old as a day is long. The way I see it is that elders are male and deacons have the opportunity to be female. That there can be female deacons. And we can talk about this all you want, but I want you to know that I'm looking at the text and I'm seeing the scriptures and I'm working through it with Sam and going, we're gonna set up an organizational structure that makes us a great boat to fish for men from a great place for people to exercise their gifts in the backdrop of the body of Christ and take the gospel out. Well, the last, the last thing that I see in here is they prayed. When they appointed the, the seven, they prayed and then they laid hands. And I see it in that order. They prayed first. Thank God for the gifts and the opportunity and the, the, the love he's given them and the family they were operating with. And then they laid hands and appointed these folks. And so the last thing the church did is they, they prayed. And, and you guys know if you've been here that we want to be a church that is known for our prayers, that we are together in prayer on a regular basis, that this is what we do as a church. We ask the Lord, we're with the Lord, and he shows us his will and direction. And so we're gonna pray to close out the time in the word. And I've got a slide up that will kind of give us some directions. We've done this before where we've gotten little groups and if you don't know anybody, that's okay. Just lean in and whoever kind of feels the most like able to pray, you'll pray. And, and there'll be these things on the screen that you can pray in a direction that God would do in our church. We're gonna do that for just a couple of minutes. And so you'll go into small groups. Somebody or two buddies will be the prayer people and you can get up and, and you can make friends after and shake hands and do the whole name thing. Right now we're gonna move in. So you guys can move around and wait thing. One more thing. So oh, y'all can get up, that's great. We're gonna pray. 
And then for a couple minutes, we're gonna do that. And then next, we're gonna, we're gonna lay hands and pray for a, a little team that is trying to build this culture into our church. There's a little team that prays every morning before the church service starts on Sundays. They pray for the prayer request cards. And so we're gonna break in little groups and pray together for these things. And then after that's done, we're gonna put the prayer team in the middle and folks are gonna come around and Sam is gonna pray really loud so that they can hear us praying for the prayer team. All right, so break into small groups, pray these things, and then in a couple minutes, we'll bring the prayer team in. We'll practice the scriptures, and then we'll worship on the way out.